0: very warm welcome to this, the fifth of our series of six Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh for the academic session 2012 to 2013. I am Stuart Brown. I'm professor of ecclesiastical history, and I'm deputy convener of the Gifford Lectureships Committee. And I have the honor of chairing this evening's lecture. Our Gifford lecture is the distinguished anthropologist and sociologist of science, Professor Bruno Latour of the Paris Institute of Political Studies. In his Gifford lecture series entitled Facing Gaia, a new inquiry into natural religion, Professor Latour has been developing a new political theology of nature with reference to, or perhaps better said, under the shadow of the monumental, rapidly evolving, indeed, apocalyptic challenges to the natural order. The lecture this evening is being recorded and the video will be available online on the Gifford website very soon. This lecture is also being streamed live around the world. Professor Latour, could I now invite you to present the fifth of your Gifford lectures on the War of the Worlds, Humans Against Earthbound. Professor Latour.
1: I don't know if you have. Notice the strange ways in which we reassure ourselves nowadays when confronted with a constant field of bad news coming from the scientific literature on the state of the Anthropocene. We have reached a point where we might take comfort in reading, for instance, the following quote. We have today a chance to play a new role in warning people of the apocalypse, the role of prophylactic messengers If we differ from the classical Judeo-Christian announcers of the apocalypse, it's not only because we are afraid of the end, whereas we long for it, but more because our apocalyptic passion has no other goal than to avoid the apocalypse. We warn of the apocalypse only to be proven wrong, only to enjoy every morning again the chance to still be around, ridiculous maybe, but standing here nonetheless. This is a passage from Gunther Anders, a prolific and neglected writer who was also Anna Arendt's first husband in a 1960 book aptly called The Time of the End, a comment on what political theology had become under the atomic mushroom cloud. If I find some solace in this description of Cassandra's character, it's because it was written 50 years ago and was alluding not to global warming at all, but to this earlier terrifying threat that used to be called the nuclear holocaust, a global warning, if any, a threat, by the way, which is still pending. Don't you find such a quote somewhat reassuring? It proves that we have have been here already. We are still standing around, ridiculous maybe, but here nonetheless. We have survived. People of my generation have lived under the shadow of mad, the mutually assured destruction for most of their life, some since August 1945, myself since the missile crisis in October 1962. And yet, in the horizon of this virtual holocaust, we seem to have lived fairly well. Thank you. Catastrophe-mongers delight in imagining to borrow from the title of a popular book, The World Without Us. But surely, such pronostication should not be taken more seriously than those of the Maya calendar. So what else is new? Is this not one more proof than those whom the sceptic call catastrophists have been wrong all along? That things are never that bad, and that ingenious humans, in the end, always learn how to cope and to get by. I feel very fidgety to have to talk tonight about war and peace, revolution and revelation, the etymology, as you know, of the word apocalypse. But if it might be too flippant to brandish the theme of the end of the word, it would be even more bizarre not to take the theme seriously in a lecture series on the political theology of nature. Politics, theology, and nature, or at least the earth, are all pointing to, if not to the end, at least to radical change of horizon. Those who don't feel in their bones that they might lose the word must have difficulty feeling alive, not only in the old banal way. Every one of us will have to quit at some point. It's the word that might forfeit us. We haven't heard, or we have never left, or we should never leave the time of the end. In his foreword, the French translator of Anders' remarkable little book Riley modifies Marx's 11 theses. Philosophers have only interpreted or changed the word in various ways. From now on, the point is to conserve it. I'm well aware that there is something nauseating to hear academics rant on about doom, blood, and war when they have not the slightest experience of conflict, living as we all most often do in the comfort of our well-heated cabinet. But I'm also well aware that no amount of warm feelings will ever be up to the task of making us able to conserve the Earth. So I find it equally nauseating the well-meaning expectation that as soon as we talk about God's grace in his creation or nature's beauty or the objective knowledge of natural law, or our responsibility to the planet, we immediately come to agree and take the necessary decision to heed the warning and avoid, in the end, the inevitable. As we have learned earlier, nature does not unify all the people of the Earth any better than the religion or objective knowledge. The appeal to nature is not more potent than Cassandra's whale. We cannot even count on catastrophe to raise our awareness. Quite the opposite. In one of the many terrifying books I've read on preparing these lectures, the historian Jan Kershaw showed that Germany lost more soldiers and civilians in the final year of the war when they have lost any hope of winning than in the four years before. It demonstrates that in the most cataclysmic of situations, when the Reich is doomed, The war clearly lost. And everyone, from marshals to housemaid, knows it nonetheless. For want of an alternative, the fight goes on, with the dictatorial criminal system almost intact all the way until final collapse. It's because we cannot console ourselves with an appeal to human wisdom, to warm spiritual feelings, to the harmony of nature, to the abused character of a threat, nor to the immensity of impending doom that, I'm sorry to say, we have to drag you into this meditation on war and peace. No matter how horrendous history has been, Geo's story will no doubt be worse. Since what until now had remained safely in the background, the landscape has now joined in the battle, something that neither the Trojan, not the German, nor even Dr. Strangelove, would have expected. What had been metaphorical until now, that even the stones scream in pain at the misery that humans cause them, has become literal. The expression a climate or an atmosphere of war has taken on another meaning now that another historian, Harald Welzer, has moved to quietly route another of those most disquieting books, Climate War, with the terrifying subtitle why people will be killed in the 21st century. I wish I could, could share with you a more cheering title. But this is another one, Clive Hamilton, another of his many books that made me lose quite a lot of sleep. He claims that the enemy of action is hope, the unquenchable hope that things will get better and that the worst is not always for sure. And Milton argues that before anything can be done, we have to uproot hope from a desperately optimistic frame of mind. So it is with many quotes that at the beginning of this lecture, I passed the sombre, dantesque warning, abandon all hope, or in a less dark, gothic style, abandon all hype, you who enter here. To understand why this state of war has been generalized, it's best to turn to the writer who has defined this situation as being one, as he called it, of exception, the toxic and unavoidable Karl Schmitt, the main expositor of political theology. His key notion of a political, as is well known, is deduced from the definition of the enemy, hostis, not inimicus, a concept that should not be confused with any moral, religious, commercial, or aesthetic attitude in spite of his adherence to Nazism, the political enemy, he says, need not be morally evil or aesthetically ugly. He need not appear as an economic competitor, and it may even be advantageous to engage him in business transaction. But it is he nonetheless, the other, the stranger. And it is sufficient for his nature that he is, in a specially intense way, existentially something different and alien so that in the extreme case, conflicts with him are impossible. Possible, sorry. But what counts is the last sentence? This can neither be decided by a previously determined general norm, nor by the judgment of a disinterested and therefore neutral third party. The crucial point for now is the last sentence. As long as there is a third party that is able to apply a previously determined norm, to judge in a disinterested way who is wrong and who is right, there is no enemy. Thus, there is no state of war, nor is there, according to Schmidt, any politics. As long as there is a referee, an arbiter, a providence, a super dispatcher that is for him, the state, the thousands of inevitable struggles among fractious humans are nothing more than internal strife that can be solved through mere management or through police operation. They can be judged. They can be calculated. They don't need to be decided. There is no war when management and accounting are sufficient. There is no war when conflicts can be solved by sending in the police, when those who dissent agree that the state has the right to define the situation. War begins when there is no sovereign arbiter, when there exist no general norms that may be applied to pass judgment. War follows the enmity, he says. War is the existential negation of the enemy. It's the most extreme consequence of enmity. It does not have to be common, normal, something ideal, or even desirable. But it must nevertheless remain a possibility for as long as the concept of the enemy remains valid. So to understand what follows. We have to keep in mind the link between politics, enmity, war, and the absence of a third party, and see what happens when we introduce unexpected non-human agencies into the dispute. The key concept here is the presence of the absence of third party. Although, of course, on first reading the other, the stranger, what is existentially something different, cannot be thought to refer, in Schmidt to any other agency than anthropomorphic one. Eighty years later, the range of aliens that have joined in the fray has dramatically expanded. What Schmidt could see only vaguely, we, contemporaries of the Anthropocene, are forced to reconsider. The appeal to nature, known by the natural sciences, no longer consists in a previously determined general norm to which we could rely for judgment by a disinterested a neutral third party. Thus, the question of enmity is vastly expanded. If I've been even marginally right in the previous lectures, you will have gathered that Gaia is unfortunately no longer disinterested in what we do. It has interest in our action. The complex set of natural sciences that compose climatology will no longer be able to play the role of undisputable and final referee. Not because of a spurious controversy over the anthropic origin of climate change, but because of a number of loops, they have to establish and after the other to make us sensitive to Gaia sensitivity, as we saw yesterday. This is what I call their post-natural, post-epistemological situation. Strangely enough, nature, at least the sublunary Earth, has been placed in a state of exception that is, in a situation that obliges everyone to make decisions because of the extremes of life and death, are there. Gaia and the Earth system, science, are fully engaged in a geostory that will turn out to be just as full of sound and fury as the history of olden days. When, in earlier epochs, before the Anthropocene, we talked about nature. We were in effect quietly and unwittingly talking as if there existed a state of nature. A state with a capital S, that is, the monstrous Leviathan, half of which made of politics and the other of science. That it had been built for a strangest type of social contract, and strange to the most bizarre use of science, we have known that since the publication of the book Leviathan and the Air Pump. The composite body of such a monster holds the sword in one hand and the air pump in the other. In the original, it was also the cross of a bishop, thus providing a telling emblem for three centuries of political epistemology. But since then, because of the many controversies in science as well as in ecology, what we have been witnessing is the progressive dissolution of this division between politics and science or to use my term, the end of a modernist constitution. Nature cannot provide the safety of a state, capital S, while science, also capital S, no longer serves as the Supreme Court of Appeal projecting its vast projective shadow of a politic. In an unexpected and unprecedented twist on Hobbes' most famous concept, we have entered instead a completely new state of nature this time with a small s and a small n. That is a war of all against all, in which the protagonist may now be not only the wolf and the sheep, but also tuna fish, as well as CO2, sea levels, plant nodules, algae, in addition, of course, to the many different factions of fighting humans. The prize that this state of nature is not situated as with Hobbes in the mythical past Before the social compact, it's coming at us. It's our present. Worse, if we are not inventive enough, it might be our future as well. No wonder that we are terrified at having lost the safety of a state. There is nothing reassuring in the dissolution of a great Leviathan and in the demise of our most cherished constitutional arrangement. If it's too early to panic, it's because the safety provided by the state of nature has never been delivered for good anyway. And because we have not abandoned the task of looking for safety and protection, peace, and certainty, it's just that we realize that we cannot obtain a civilized collective without composing it, bit by bit, agency by agency, thus searching for a vital that we come to grasp with Gaia. In other words, the task of building the republic, the true res publica, is still way ahead of us. It's not that ecological disputes are destroying the social compact and that we should lament the lack of respect for scientific authority. It's that, thanks to Gaia's eruption, we realize that we have not even started to draft a realistic compact. At least not that one could hold together this sublunary earth of ours. Is this not what assembled us tonight? Now that the capital S, capital N states of nature has been dissolved, how can we get out of a small s, small n state of nature, the war of all against all? Renewing politics at the end of religious wars sounds much like renewing in the midst of scientific controversies. We are still facing Hop's old question, how to put an end to civil wars, except that that he wished to rebuild civil society after the guarantee of one really Catholic religion had vanished, while we have to do the same now that the authority of a really Catholic nature, known by the unified science, has crumbled as well. In the New and the careful exegesis of scientific literature replaces that of religious scripture. It's a shipwrecked, all right, but there is no spectator left. It's rather like in the story of Pi. In the lifeboat, there is a Bengali tiger. The poor young castaway has no solid shore from which to enjoy the spectacle of a high how to survive alongside an untamable wild beast, for which he is simultaneously the tamer and the meal. To sketch such a Leviathan, in spite of all appearances, we should not look to our modernist past with too much regret, because no good ensue were we to deny that such a generalized state of war is indeed the case. If we were to do so, we should simply suck politics out of the landscape and replace it by either education, management, governance, or police operation. As Schmidt writes, a world in which the possibility of war is utterly eliminated, a completely pacified globe would be a world without the distinction of friend and enemy, and hence a world without politics. Well, the good news, to say the least, is that a completely pacified globe is not what we are facing. Such a dream has existed, to be sure. It has been the ideal of naturalists, the utopia of deep, superficial, or mid-deft ecologists. And it's still the horizon of those who hope to manage, engineer, or re-engineer the planet, those who wish to get by with sustainable development, those who claim to be the good intendant the earnest butler, the clever gardener, or the careful steward of the earth. In brief, it's the dream of those who would prefer to do without politics altogether. The great virtue of dangerous and reactionary thinkers like Schmidt is to force us to make a choice much starker than that of many ecologists still swayed by the power of unremitting hope. Schmidt's choice is terribly clear: Either you agree to tell false from friends, and then you engage in two politics, sharply defining the borderline of real enough war, war about the, what, the way the world is made of, or you shy away from waging wars and having enemy, but then you do away with politics, which means that you are giving yourself over to the protection of an all-encompassing state of nature that has already unified the world into one single whole, a state that should thus be able to resolve all conflicts from its disinterested, neutral, overarching third-party view. Of course, the solution would would be better. I agree. I'm not a bellicose person myself, but only providing that such a state exists. If there is none, then. What passes for common sense is simply criminal, since you accept to place your safety and that of the others in a care of an entity that does not exist. Without meeting such a challenge, there will be only police operation that would inevitably and miserably fail But no plausible politics of nature. How I wish I could entertain you with soothing words about the splendor of natural parks, the beauty of God's creation, or the stunning discovery of the Earth system sciences. But the hard job of politics has to be done first. For this, we have to define what is the threat, who are the enemies, which sort of geopolitics we will end up with. To cope with the threat, we first have to understand why we feel it's coming at us, and why it is so difficult to face it head-on. As long as I've been trying to encounter Gaia, I've pictured in my mind the movement of a dancer First, fleeing backward as if she was escaping faster and faster from something truly horrible, indifferent to the destruction she left behind by moving blithely backward, much like Benjamin Angel of History. And then, glancing behind her more and more often, she finally begins to turn around, slow down, as if she was penetrating a thorny bush, looking to the full awe of the shape of things to see. Then she faced, and at last, suddenly coming to a complete stop, eyes and hands wide open in disbelief, she began to withdraw. Contrary to what they often say of themselves, modernists are not forward-looking, but almost exclusively backward-looking creatures. That's why the eruption of Gaia surprised them so much. Since they have no eyes in the back of their head, they deny it's coming at them at all as if they were too busy fleeing the horror of the times of old. It seems that their vision of the future has blinded them to where they were going, or rather, as if what they meant by the future was entirely made of rejected past without any realistic content about things to come." It works better in French because we have l'avenir and le futur. Children of the Enlightenment are used to defining its great relish, the threatening past from which they were courageous enough to escape. They are largely silent on the shape of things to come. Modernizers are extraordinarily good at freeing themselves from the shackle of the archaic, provincial, stuffy, local, territorial past. But where the time comes to designate the new localities, the new territories, the new provinces, the new now networks toward which they are migrating. They content themselves with utopia, with hype, and great movement of a chest as if they were preparing themselves to breathe a thin, intoxicating air of globalization. No wonder they never, ma- never paid any attention to where they're headed, obsessed as they were to escape from attachment to the old land, good at detachment They seem quite naive when the question is how to reattach themselves to a new abode, how to delineate a new nomos. They sound like astronauts making plans to head out in empty space without spacesuits. Funnily enough, the more progress-oriented modernizers are, the more they are ready to deny that ecology could even be an issue the more rabid is their contempt for those they call prophets of doom, apocalypse-mongers. If you push them a bit more, they will even tell you that all the talk about the end of time or the eruption of Gaia is nothing but so many schemes to exploit the poor developing countries even more if they are from the left. If they are from the right, that it's nothing but a plot to impose communism on the rich, developed nation. It's as if they were all saying, progress-minded of all nations and all parties, let's unite in the denial of climatology as our new horizon. We need neither territory nor a soil.
2: There is no limit.
1: Forward. Only reactionary insist on limit. They don't want us to be emancipated. They want to drag us back to the land, to an era of restriction and misery for which we have finally so successfully migrated. How surprising is to find oneself in such a situation with two entirely opposite views of what it is to progress forward, because Gaia is simultaneously what was there and has been forgotten and left behind, Gaia, the old goddess, and what is coming to us, our future. Thus, any worry for the climate and the soil could mean moving backward and forward simultaneously. If the word human comes from humus, that is the soil, we change the direction of the arrow of time entirely. As soon as we replace soil by earth, we shift from being reactionary to progress-minded. To insist on the soil of the old reactionary one, Blut und Boden, we are reactionary. And against those call for remaining backward, how right the revolutionary were in calling for emancipation. And yet, what they could not imagine was that there might be another meaning to being attached to the old soil, this time to the earth. As soon as you say this, things turn around, and the land that used to be what you should leave to undergo the movement of modernization forward becomes the new Earth that is coming at you. Again, I'm sorry to say the French is better. Le retour à la terre is not the same thing as le retour de la terre. At the epoch of the Anthropocene, the great narrative of emancipation has made us totally helpless at finding our way to where we belong, as if the very notion of belonging smacked of reaction. And yet, you could think. But after several centuries of critique of religion, we would have no difficulty whatsoever in recognizing that we are of this earth. How strange that after so many client calls from embracing materialism, we find ourselves totally unprepared to deal with the material condition of our atmospheric existence. What progress-minded people could not anticipate was that the revolution they longed for had already happened. However, it had, not come, it had not come from any massive change in the property of means of production, but had occurred full speed in the movement of the carbon cycle. At a time when so many people lament the lack of revolutionary spirit and the demise of our emancipatory ideal, it is left to natural historians to reveal that the revolution has already occurred. But in the past, this is the great acceleration I showed yesterday, revolutionary minded activists are taken on the wrong foot when they realize that whatever we do now, the threat will remain with us for centuries, for millennia, because the baton of so many irre- irreversible revolutionary actions by humans has been taken over by the inertial warming of the sea, the changes in the albedo of the poles by the growing acidity of the ocean and is visible in the tipping point reached by the slow creep of the Himalaya glaciers. So here is another an unanticipated twist in the arrow of time. The revolution has already ended, and it has to be done all over again. I am convinced that at the root of climate skepticism, there is this amazing reversal in the direction of progress, in the definition of what is the future and what it means to belong to a territory. And so that you don't believe that I'm trying to exclude myself from this argument, let's confess that we are all skeptics. I certainly am. And so is this climatologist I was interviewing a few months back, a remarkably sad scientist who as he ended the description of his beautiful discipline, had to sigh But in practice, I'm a skeptic nonetheless, since from the fully objective knowledge I contribute producing, I do nothing to protect my kids from what is coming. This is the terrible quandary in which we find ourselves, being either one of those who deny that there is a threat or one of those who, knowing full well that there is a threat, do nothing to meet it, nothing at last, at least at the right scale. I'm not sure what is best, to be a denier or to be important. What is sure is that we behave like divided souls. We change light bulbs one day, we sort, refuse another, while reading with tears in our eyes that arctic glaciers are calving icebergs at an unprecedented speed and we do nothing. Even the angles of dialectics of nature did not wish to be so right that we would witness every one of the agency of the planet being mobilized in the dizzying frenzy of historical action. Even the Hegel of phenomenology of spirit could not envision that the advent of the Anthropocene would so radically reverse the direction of his project that humans would be dialectically immersed in the geostorical adventure of carbon, oxygen, and methane. Think of that. The whole breath of a spirit, now sublated, half even, overcome, intoxicated by carbon dioxide. If it has become impossible to escape from the theme of the end of the world, in spite of the apparent flippancy, It's because we need to exert an enormous violence on ourselves to practice this turn, this metanoia, this conversion. What is coming at us should appear as a threat, because it's the only way to make you sensitive to the very difficulty of being of this earth, as Sloterdijk would say, of the immense difficulty of explicating your immunology, your air condition. Interestingly, Anne Jonas makes the connection with Hobbes' state of nature. He points out that there is an added difficulty with ecology that Hobbes didn't have to consider. I'm citing here. This is from Anne Jonas. The imagined fate of future men, let alone that of a planet, which affects neither me nor anyone else, still connected with me by the bonds of love or just of coexistence, does not of itself have the influence upon our feeling. And this beautiful sentence, and yet it ought to have it, that is, we should allow this influence by purposely making room for it in our disposition. That's, in principle, imperative responsibility. By the way, Jonas was talking about the future generation. No one speaks of future generation anymore. This is us. It's our generation, our kids and our grandchildren. Now that we begin to realize how we could turn around so as to face the danger instead of fleeing from it, we have to deal with a second, even more difficult topic, that of how to tell friends from foes, which is the condition, as we saw earlier, for keeping politics alive, at least if you accept to use Karl Schmitt. Dangerous is poison. I mean, it has to be used in small dose. But there is a huge difference in responding to a threat under the auspices of politics or under that of knowledge may be clearly seen when you compare the quick panic space of a weapon race triggered by the Cold War and the slow, leisurely evolution of negotiation of our climate. Hundreds of billions of dollars have been poured into atomic armament to respond to a threat for which the information obtained by spies was slim at best, while the menace caused by the anthropic origin of climate change is probably the best documented, most objectively produced piece of knowledge anyone would ever be able to possess in advance of taking action. And yet, in the first case, all the traditional emotion of warlike politics led in the name of precaution to the buildup of a barrackly organized arsenal, while in the other, much energy is still spent to delay, deny, or water down the knowledge necessary to trigger ridiculously undersized sum of money. Just compare the sensitivity of the public to the reception of George Kennan's secret long telegram of 1946 about Soviet strategy to that of Sir Nicholas Stern, fully open review in 2006 on the very small monies necessary to avoid the most deleterious effect of climate change. In one case, the clear presence of enemy, war and politics, gave to the word precaution the meaning of quick action, while in the other, the uncertainty of enmity, war and politics, gave to precaution the very appeasing connotation of wait and see. Confronted with such a discrepancy in the speed of reaction, it's tempting for ecologically minded activists to turn to what is unanimous, universal, necessary, and undisputable, namely the objective knowledge we have of the situation, the global responsibility of humanity, and the undefeasible law of indifferent nature. No question such an appeal makes a lot of tactical sense in the sense that feminists use the expression strategic essentialism. But it doesn't go to the heart of the question. If ecologists never had the clout necessary to meet the the threat they were so good at revealing, it's because they try to bypass politics. As I've shown in Politics of Nature, too often ecologists have simply repainted in green the same gray nature that had been devised in the 17th century to render politics, if not powerless, at least subservient to science. This nature that has been given the role of a disinterested third party, able in the last instant to referee all disputes. This nature inside which so many scientists still believe they have to take refuge so as to protect themselves from the dirty business of politics. This nature which has inherited all the function of the overseeing and all-encompassing god of olden days. And that is just as unable to bring a providence to bear down on Earth. Thus, one has to choose between a nature that hides its politic and a politic that makes its nature explicit. I know it's a dangerous argument, but I have to go on. I gave five lectures on it. Without first recognizing that people are divided into so many warring parties, no peace will be possible. No republic will ever be built. I beseech you not to conclude that I'm smashing the ideal of universality. I recognize, I share, I cherish this ideal. I'm just trying to find a way to make it realistic. And for this we have to make sure that we don't think it's already realized. Just as Hobbes needed the state of nature to get the social contract, we might need to accept a new state of war to envision the state of peace. This is why it was so important in the earlier lecture to fight against Atlas malediction and to introduce the scheme of multiple dispersed people assemble under and deploying agency in their own specific way, according to their own specific numbers. So let's see what happens when, instead of fancying that you have no enemy, we answer the question, designate your enemy, and delineate the soil you are ready to defend. And first, what about Gaia? Even if we might be shocked by Lovelock's militaristic metaphor, Gaia is a potential enemy, at least for humans. The old nature could be wholly indifferent to our destiny. She could have been a cruel stepmother, or she might have been read in tough and Claw, as in the rationalized dream of social Darwinism. But in none of his three representations could Mother Nature Will he be at war with human? Since the fight was settled in advance, she will win. She had the ultimate ratio. As the saying goes, you cannot fool nor beat Mother Nature. Able to play the role of a third party, what she did for or against human was never more menacing than a police operation. But Gaia is different because it is no longer indifferent to our action. Our relation with it is not that of a mother to a child. We are both adults in a fully secular world. The cruelty is equally shared between the two protagonists. The balance of force calculated nowadays in terawatts, is still uncertain. And both parties, which is completely new, share the same fragility. Even though Gaia has a much greater chance to going on than does civilization, according to geologists, Human have become strong enough to push it in such a different state that it would become another being altogether. That's what it means to live in the Anthropocene. We are locked in a world war, a 200-year world war. But what makes the designation of the enemy even more urgent is that there is, of course, no sense in speaking, as I've just done, of a human race as being a party in a conflict of just. The front line divides not only every every one of us all, but it also divides all the collectives with respect to every single one of the cosmopolitical issue we face. The Anthropos of the Anthropocene is nothing but the dangerous fiction of a universalized agent able to act as one single people. Such a supposition would imply that the state to be built is already there. The human capital age as the giant atlas-like agent of history, as in so many 19th century myth, is precisely what the Anthropocene has broken down and totally dispersed. The Anthropocene does not put an end to anthropocentrism, but also to any premature unification of the human race. Whatever you, whether you take the word dispute of a genetically modified organism, the calculation of fish stocks, the development of wind turbines, etc., in each case, you find matters of concern that gather within their many contradictory folds various groups of folks that are in disagreement and vast amount of knowledge that necessarily are in dispute. And that's good, because now at last, we can see everyone operating under their own flag, defining the shape, dimension, limits, content, and composition of their cosmology. If there is a recognized state of war, it's possible for every one of the warring party to be explicit about their war aims. Except for tactical reasons, there is no need to hide behind any appeal to the objectivity of knowledge, to the undisputable values of human development, to the public good? Rather, tell us who you are. Who are your friends and foes? Who else you want to fight? And yes, tell us clearly by which divinity you feel summoned and protected. Even though this argument sounds cruel, we have not lost anything by no longer being able to rely on any third party. I tremble here to propose something that could be so easily misunderstood. But I have to draw the consequence without flinching. We might have to accept the division of a prematurely unified human race into collectives in conflict with one another we have to put into question not only the idea of nature as indifferent to our plight, remember that Gaia is ticklish, but also the no- notion of prematurely pacified humans. In the geostorical situation we have entered with the Anthropocene, we might even have to say that humans are now at war, not with nature, but with, with whom? I'm at a loss to find a name. Science fiction often used the name Earthlings, but that was the whole of the human race viewed from another planet and in close encounter with little green men. We might need a label that divides former humans, that pit them against one another, instead of lumping all of them into one vague, anthropic, shapeless mass. Gaians, terrestrial, I've chosen earthbound, bound as if bound by a spell, as well as bound in the sense of heading somewhere, thereby designating the joint attempt to reach the earth while being unable to escape from it, a moving testimony to the fren- frenetic immobility of those who live on Gaia. I know that it's terribly dangerous to state the matter this starkly. But we might have to say that at the epoch of the Anthropocene, the human and the Earth-bound should be at war. In Bellatar's film, The Turin Horse, offer what is probably the best and also the most depressing definition of what it is to have shifted from humanity to Earth-boundedness. In the final tempest of the last days of Earth, Father and daughter decide to flee, at last, their miserable shack. With a sigh of relief, the spectators see them finally going away, expecting that they have at least a chance of escaping their diet of one potato a day. But then, through a reversal that is the most damning sign of our time, a reversal that I don't think any other fi- film has dared show, instead of moving to another land, one of opportunity, Full of a great expectation, full of hopes, we see with horror that we come back exhausted, despondent, bound to the shack, resuming the old, even more miserable life, until eventually darkness envelops them in its shroud. Those too are earthbound; they have ceased to be humans any longer. To bring this lecture to a close. I want to deal with the last and third topic, that the question of geopolitics. That is the sort of soil that is to be defended in those war of the world. And once again, we should appeal to Schmidt and to his most extraordinary book, The Nomos of the Earth. While the concept of nomos could have sounded in an earlier period utterly reactionary, it takes a totally new resonance now that we begin to feel the Earth slipping under our feet. This is the forward. Human thinking, again, must be directed to the elemental orders of its terrestrial being here and now. We seek to understand, we seek to understand the normative order of the Earth. That is the hazardous undertaking of this book and the fervent hope of our work. The earth has been promised to the artisans of peace. The idea of a new nomos of the earth belongs only to them. The book has been written long after the war, the Second World War. Is this not exactly what we are trying to do? Understand the normative order of the earth and fulfill the promise that has been given in the Sermon on the Mount to the artisans of peace? Schmidt, without, of course, any interest in ecology, but because of his definition of politics, might have established the connection between law, land, people, and the science of geography that is best suited to establish Gaia, if I dare say, on a solid ground. Again, in mythical language, the earth became known as the mother of law. In this way, the earth is bound to law in three ways. She contains law within herself as a reward of labor. She manifests law upon herself as fixed boundary. And she sustains law above herself as a public sign of order. Law is bound to the earth and related to the earth. This is what the poet means when he speaks of the infinitely just earth, justissima telus. Contrary to the earthbound, humans are not completely to be completely trusted, because you never know when they are heading nor what is the principle that delineates the boundaries of their people. It's thus impossible to draw an accurate map of their geological conflicts. Either they tell you that they belong to nowhere in particular, Defined only by the fact that, thanks to their spiritual and moral quality, they have been able to free themselves from the harsh necessity of nature. Or they tell you that they fully belong to nature and its realm of material necessity. But what they mean by materiality, bears so little relation with the agency they have previously de-animated that the realm of necessity looks just as out of earth as the realm of freedom. In both cases, they seem unable to belong to any cosmos, to trace any nomos. And because of this lack of localization, they seem to remain indifferent to the consequence of their action. The earthbound, on the other hand, are bound to specific nomos of the Earth and delineated by lines of space and what Schmidt called land appropriation. Nomos comes from Nemein, a word that means both to divide and to pasture. Thus, nomos is the immediate form in which the political and the social order of the people become spatially visible. What would have sounded scandalous in the mid-20th century takes a rather different tone, you would agree with me, at the time of the Anthropocene. It's in that sense that earthbound may appear sensitive and responsible, not because they possess any supernatural qualities, but because they belong to a territory and because the delineation of their people is made explicit by the state of exception in which they accept being placed by those they dare call their enemy. Of course, the territory does not resemble the nicely-colored geographical maps of our classroom. It's not made of nation state, the only actors that Schmid, of course, considered, but of interlocking, conflicting, entangled, contradictory networks that no harmony, no system, no third party, no overall providence may unify in advance. Ecological conflicts do not bear on the nationalistic Lebensraum of the past, but they do deal with space and life. The territory of an agent is the series of other agents that are necessary for it to survive on the long run, its umwelt, its protective envelope. Of course, such a divide between inside and outside is highly fragile and variable, since the series of agents on which any one of us depends and to which we belong cannot be summed up without sensors and instruments. Any weakening of a sensor any limit in the bandwidth of its instrument, and at once the agents become less sensible, less responsive, less responsible, and lose its territory, unable to define to what it belongs. So territory expands or shrink, depending on the controversies that are raging over what is or what is not an item of a series. That is what makes this geopolitical map so difficult to stabilize. If humans and Earthbound are in conflict, it might be also the case of their conflicting scientists. By contrast, Earthbound scientists are fully incarnated creatures. They are a people. They have enemies. They belong to the soil drawn for the instrument. Their knowledge extends as far as their ability to expand, to finance, to survey to maintain the censor that renders visible the consequence of their action. Remember killing yesterday. They have no qualms confessing the tragic existential drama in which they are engaged. They are saying how afraid they are. And in their view, such a fright increase rather than diminish the quality of their science. They appear clearly as a new form of non-national power having a stake in geopolitical conflict. If their territory knows no national boundary, it's not because they have access to the universal, but because they keep bringing in new agents to be part and parcel of the subsistence of other agents. Their authority is fully political, since they represent agents that have no other voice and who intervene in the life of many others. They are allowed to have interest and to disclose them to the full. They don't hesitate to draw the shape of the world, the numbers, the cosmos in which they prefer to live, and with what sort of other agency they are ready to ally themselves. For them, to have allies is not shameful. They no longer try to be the third party lording over all the dispute. They are a party. And they sometimes win, sometimes lose. They are of this world. They don't shy from waging battle over what Schmidt called in his stirs and toxic language, Raum Kriege, ways for the ordering of wars for the ordering of space. Freed from the damning obligation of being priest of a divinity they don't believe in, they might even pr- proudly say, "We are from Gaia." Not because they entrust themselves to the final wisdom of a super entity, but because at last they have abandoned the dream of living under the shadow of any. Super entity, secular, fully secular. What for most people could be seen as a catastrophe, that the scientists are now fully engaged into geopolitics, is what I could see as the small, the tiny source of hope, if only hope was still what we need to cling to. In the last three evenings, I've tried to sketch for you the face of Gaia, to draw the consequences of what it means to live in the period called by geologists the Anthropocene. And finally, I have reluctantly to explore today the time of the end. How I wish I could say that all of this is metaphorical, symbolic, that when appealing to nature, we don't need to deal with questions of war and peace, that these are so many figures of speech. I've been told that when, in 1498, Durer launched the costly process of engraving, printing, and selling his magnificent series of views of the apocalypse, he was simultaneously, as a devout Christian, preparing his soul for the coming of Christ in 1500, but also as a shrewd artist qua investor, betting that he would make a great deal of profit in case he would live to see the dawn of 1501. What a relief it would be to find ourselves prey to such an easy contradiction, hedging our bets. And yet, how much worse it would be this time the end of the world, as we have known it was for good, and that the absurdity was not in believing it's coming, but in snugly reassuring ourselves that it's not coming. The only thing I like in the damning argument I had to present tonight is the marvelous irony that what might be foreshadowed by Holderlin's overly commented verse, only a god can save us, is not the last coming of any great god, but instead a return to the oldest, humblest, most primitive, shapeless, and secular goddess of Gaia, thus bringing Geo's story full circle. If humans are at war with it, What about those whom I've proposed to call the earthbound? Can they be artisans of peace? I have one more lecture to find out.
0: We've had a, an eloquent but disturbing lecture, a troubling set of visions, a sense of our being in the end time, an urgent, compelling appeal. Perhaps to, to bring conflict into the open. I think there's a sense that uh, The liberal ideal of reconciliation of interests in society, in which so many of us have embraced, may have become dangerous because it may lead to complacency, and we may need a revived politics of conviction. We may need to become more uncomfortable, more fearful, more committed, and perhaps more violent for our principles. It's been a very important lecture, and we are indebted to Professor Latour. Now, um, as is our custom, we'll have a break of two to three minutes to allow those who have to leave to do so. And after that, we'll have some time for questions and discussions. Perhaps I might take the prerogative of a question from the chair then. Uh, 200 years ago, people would have had similar fears. in Britain, they revolved around Thomas R. Malthus and the Malthusian fear of, of overpopulation and, uh, and the destruction of the, of the biosphere as a result of, of population growth. It's one thinker that I've not heard you mention uh, in your lectures so far. And I wonder, can you comment at all upon the population threat, or the Malthusian threat, or neo-Malthusianism, as we would refer to it now?
1: Well, the, the, the problem is always a question of, uh, of the limit, because that's a question of limit, right? Mm. Which is what Malthus uh, developed with great influence on Darwin, as everyone knows. And uh, these limits have always been uh, overemphasized and always ridicule Mm. later. And that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to absorb the situation which these guys, the geologists, call great acceleration. Because we we have, in fact, the cry wolf. uh, Do you you, say that in English? Mm -hmm. The cry wolf metaphor, I mean, sort of slogan. And it's very difficult to uh, imagine what it could mean uh, if a thing, that's why I've ended on that. Uh, (laughs) we, We would like to be, again, the cry wolf. But those guys who invent the Anthropocene are pretty serious about what they call great acceleration. I remember very well when the Club of Rome um, published this thing in the 1970s or something. I, as a sort of reasonably on the left, thought it was ridiculous. It was a a plot by bourgeois uh, capitalists to limit, again, like Malthus had done. And it was actually accused of of being Malthusian. So Malthusian is, is an accusation which comes constantly. And which has to be taken very seriously, because, of course, the Anthropos is not unified again. So whom do you want to control? Is it the rich, the poor, <laughs> those of the North, those of the South, etc.? So this is why the, the, the new discussion around numbers and limits, which is what I would try on Thursday, uh, cannot be uh, naturalized. And of course, the whole argument around Malthus is a renaturalization of the limit, not a politicization in the sense of politics I use here. So the big question is, can we talk about limits and still maintain the f- spirit of forwardness, and not to have the limits naturalized? So that's where the whole question we are answering with the Anthropocene seems to lie.
3: Uh, I noticed that you were careful often to use the word threat, but never used the word risk, yeah? And in some way, uh, th- threat relates to danger and, uh, and somehow has some relation to the theological sphere, whereas risk embeds something in a temporal aspect and, and the frequentist notion in, uh, in the statistical notion of probability, and also has the quantification in terms of, of consequence. And I wondered whether you saw that as being at all an important feature of the Anthropocene in, in terms of the rise of the notion of risk, and, uh, and this politicization, because in some sense risk is, a, is a, something that belongs in the political sphere. That's
1: very interesting. But the, the, I mean, so it's the same thing as if you, call about, if you talk about ecological crisis or ecological cataclysm. Uh, is it... Risk is a sort of governance-based, slightly polite, organizational ways of handling this question. Since I have a chance, because of a gift to talk about with the uh, religious uh, tradition in the the back of our mind, uh, it's very interesting to talk about threat. And, of course, this is why Jonas, I had to skip this part in, for the time, but the, the, the whole argument about, that Jonas makes is, is, is about, it has to be a threat, because we have to live. We have to make ourselves able to listen to it. So there is nothing irrational in talking about threat and apocalypse, because it's the only way to make the threat uh, sensitive enough, which is what problem that Hobbes didn't have. Because the civil war, I mean, everyone understands the danger of civil war. No one understands what it means to be in a planet that is fighting you. So this is why you're right. I mean, risk, risk is a very interesting thing in itself. But it, uh, it has been absorbed into governance, so to speak. So it, it, it's a security question, not a political question, in the sense of David Blow has a question up there.
2: I think that climate activists would say that it was very easy to identify the Schmidt enemy in the present circumstances, and they would say that it was global capitalism. Now, you, you, Bruno, have very clearly... uh, I'm sorry. You, You, Bruno, have very clearly gone out of your way not to give that answer and indeed you have expressed yourself if I remember rightly as uh, uh, rather baffled as to who the enemy might be. Could you perhaps explain to us why you will not align yourself or why you are deliberately not aligning yourself with uh, climate activists?
1: Capitalism. The enemy is capitalism. Yes. Uh, Chakrabarti, in a very interesting paper he gave in Berlin on the Anthropocene, mentioned the very uh, sort of Riley uh, view that uh, fortunately capitalism has won because uh, if a if Soviet had gone, I mean, if a Soviet type of socialism had won, we would be in a much worse situation in terms of climate change, which is a very, coming from Chakrabarty with himself, a Marxist, it's quite an interesting uh, view. So the idea that uh, capitalism would be the enemy is, of course, I'd say, on the face of it, uh, right. But that doesn't solve any of the question of with what sort of agent will we associate ourselves in an anti-capitalist view? I mean, where, where for instance to take Chakrabarty example, is the carbon cycle. What do we do with a carbon cycle, a socialist carbon cycle? Uh, Mitchell wrote a very important book called uh, Carbon Democracy, which is the whole history, which is a sort of neo Marxist view of the whole history of the 20th century out of a carbon cycle. And it's very difficult to recognize the shape, the exact shape of the capitalist enemy in the traditional sense of the word. So uh, it would be nice to be able to designate the enemy that fast. But I don't think it's possible, because we would have to make the whole list of a cosmos with which the enemy of capitalism compose their own cosmos. Do they accommodate the nine billions of us that we will be? With what energy, with what land, with what? So there is a sense, of course, in which it has to do with capitalism. But there is another sense in which, no, it has to be redesigned. The territories of the fighting enemies have to be redrawn, it seems to me.
2: What does that mean? I can't understand that. Sorry? I can't understand your last sentence about redrawing. I I don't know what process you're referring to.
1: It implies that the capitalism is a a well-defined enemy, which has its own definition of a cosmos, which has a unified territory against which other People equally well defined. This is a Cold War definition of what it is to fight capitalism in other words. And the problem is that with the Anthropocene, you never know with what you are allied and who are your enemies, which is precisely the problem. If it were about capitalism, we would know that the agent of history, which is now fighting capitalism, is well defined. This is what we had in our youth, so to speak. And the situation is more complex now. Agree, it would be nice to have capitalism as an enemy. And we say, well, fight capitalism.
0: That's a problem. Would you like to come back on that? Or? OK. Oh, we've got a question then up uh, a little bit up the aisle. Yes.
3: One of, one of the um, really interesting characters in the Turin horse is the horse, uh, which Uh, I can't remember the exact chronology, um, but at certain points in the film, uh, it's an ally uh, in the father and daughter's fight against the encroaching darkness. But then at other points, it turns into uh, an enemy or it betrays them when it refuses to eat anymore. My question, uh, which is one of geography, is what happens to territory and when enemies are multiple, so that's to say, um, uh, an agent might be my enemy in one network, but an ally in another overlapping network.
1: The, 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 that's why it's so interesting to have a Schmidt definition of enemy, because the enemy is not someone—I mean, someone we could, we, with whom we could actually have multiple uh, treaties and commerce. Actually, it's clear in the quote I mentioned. The only definition of the enemy is that there is no way to reorganize a super decision, super arbiter to decide enemy. <laughs> so in that sense, we see why capitalism cannot be an enemy, because it means that you already know where the limits of the boundaries are. So it means that you have a view of history, which is self-organizing the whole distribution of a position. So the, the, multi, the, the great difficulty in what you, you, you use, I, I agree with you with my argument. The, what is a network in geopolitics? We have no idea of what is a conflicting networks. We sort of know what geopolitics has, which is boundary, nation-state boundary. I mean the old history, but we, we, it's very much more difficult to understand what could it be to have ecological uh, fights, where where the parties are intermingled, so to speak. On the horse, it's quite interesting what happened to animals in film right now. This is why I was very interested in the story of Pi, because the, the Bengali tiger leaves without even recognizing any sort of, of, of friendship with the guy uh, that with, which, with whom he had survived for so many years. And it's very interesting that in the horse of Turin, the, it, the horse is the first one to decide I quit
0: we've got a question uh, up here and then and then. This. <laughs>
4: Uh, in my own mind, I've been sort of trying to work with the distinction you made between humans and the earthbound and just get that clear in my mind. And there's a slight difficulty I'm having. It may be that I've just not fully grasped the distinction, but I'm wondering whether the distinction is a totally clear one or whether, if you like, there are persons who share in both uh, of the ideas that you're putting forward. You gave the example from um, climatology, that a person can be, as it were, totally au fait with what's going on in the climate, yet be a climate sceptic because they're not going to act out of what they they come to believe. Um, The distinction between the human and the earthbound, is it a clear distinction? Because I may not thoroughly have got it. Or or is it something in which there are going to be ways in which different persons participate, perhaps having a, a, a human component and an earthbound component within their single makeup.
1: Yeah, as I said, we are divided souls. And I was very struck by this uh, climatologist's uh, response to me saying, I'm a, I'm, in practice, I am a skeptic because I, I do this science, but I don't do anything because of my kids, for my kids. I found that very moving. And lots of these people I'm interviewing are actually very divided exactly along the line that you say. The, the, the introduction of a concept of earthbound versus human is, of course, a thought experiment to see how far we can counteract the idea that we already know what is the set of association with which we compose the world. Because we know that in politics, of course. We all know that we are divided solely in politics. But we have this long tradition that when we deal with ecology, with question of the, uh, the Earth and nature, we bring in a vast array of of, uh, concept and notions, which are supposed to make us agree because of the confusion between Gaia and nature, and nature as known by objective knowledge. So this is why I counteract maybe too much this this, uh, attempt at sucking politics out of ecology by making this figure of the agent of history, which would be earthbound. But it's the same problem with capitalism. Who is the agent of history? So who is the agent of history who has the Anthropocene as its horizon? Is it the human in the emancipatory vision? Is it the worker, the proletariat? Is it uh, the West? (laughs) All of these questions are open. That's what I'm trying to point out with what is a thought experiment, of
4: course. Please. I'm Sorry, and when you talk about the agent of history, the earthbound agent of history, yeah. presumably it is important that the agent is uh, conscious of themselves as being that agent, because otherwise a human in the 18th century could be an agent in history, uh, affecting the history of the earth, the Gaia, really? but not actually. So it is important that one is actually conscious of being an agent of history if one is to be part of the earthbound. But Lecture 6...
5: Oh,
1: sorry. Uh, Demogenesis is is the subject of lecture 6.
5: Professor Latour, I was um, wondering if I could get some clarity on Gaia, on what Gaia is. Um, You've said that it's the most secular entity that we've seen, possibly. But I have some sort of questions about what that means. Uh, In previous work, your previous work, you've uh, talked about how the modern it was the modern practice of purifying the science from politics, from uh, religion, and from that work, I had listened to you saying that, uh, calling for a new way in which collectives uh, to view the collectives from their networks, from the network of the. Science, politics, and religion—how they're one entity. Um, so, when I listen to the word "secular," I'm wondering if you're referring to a secularization of Gaia, as in a purification from religion, or if it's something that uh, is different than that. Uh, what, I mean, what does "secular" mean in, in this sense?
1: Well, you're, right, you're pointing out that secularizers trans um Terms in the context. This was a way to um, put some salt <laughs> into the question of natural religion by showing the identity of construction between nature and religion first. This translation imperhive I mentioned in the two first lectures, which is that it, if we now if we find a way of comparing what we are discussing today, which is who is the agent of history, and what sort of soil they have, and what sort of divinity they have, which is what political theology is about, demos, nomos, and theos, then we render comparable lots of different people with their theos and their nomos. Mm -hmm. Okay, now if we do this table of translation between these various um, collective, to use my word, secular in the case of Gaia, means that the definition of a divinity is much less powerful and much less uh, law-like than nature. So there is a clear distinction between Gaia and nature, uh, and so on and so forth of three other features. So secular is a slightly polemical term, which I might try to find uh, a substitute for, I I agree. But it's, it's also to counteract the idea that Gaia is a, is a cybernetic system. Because of the globe, the globe, fabulous obsession for globes, which I criticized yesterday, every time you mention Gaia of the Earth, immediately people do this with their hands and they say, well, we need to take into account the big picture. And there's nothing. I mean, it's what I call the, 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 the big pumpkin argument. I mean, they, they, whatever you say global, you do this with your hand, it's inevitable. <laughs> But the problem is that it's never very big. It's just a pumpkin. Size. <laughs> so to fight that, the great thing is that Gaia is, on the contrary, a set of interconnected events. It's not a cybernetic metaphor. And in that, if, you, if you keep adding all these features, you realize that it's a strange beast. I mean, it's very, very different from nature and what we were expecting from nature before. And it's also, of course, it has lots of consequence uh, on <coughs> the interpretation of Lovelock's uh, writing, which I take very seriously, Lovelock, even in, if he's a strange and not um, completely coherent uh, writer. Nor am I, actually. A
0: question up on the
6: front. The topic we didn't yet address from your lecture is apocalyptic and its role. Um, I mean, the silence initially to your kind of apocalyptic talk was very instructive. In the film that you've mentioned many times, and I think it's a brilliant film, Melancholia, the film Melancholia by Lars von Trier, the character who acknowledges that this vast asteroid will hit the bride is the one, in the end, who offers comfort who creates a ritual space, if you remember the little, the, the, the sticks, almost like a tent, uh, hugs the children, offers genuine care to uh, its potential victims, including herself. Whereas the deniers, one shoots himself, another one drives off in a four by four, and so on and so forth. I think that's very instructive about different kinds of, that film is very instructive about different kinds of apocalyptic and the role they play. In the New Testament, when St. Paul in Thessalonians uses a the language of apocalyptic, he links it directly with moral action now, to care for the neighbor, um, to love the creator, care for, for you know. so the, whereas other kinds of apocalyptic can lead us down this very survivalist uh, threat-war mode. And, and that's something to do with the rhetoric, it seems to me, the, the way we deploy apocalyptic. And, Certainly some of the climate change catastrophism from that point of view is very problematic and can be very disabling. But equally, I would argue, apocalyptic can have this other function of actually stimulating action. There will be a balance between mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. We know this. But if we are really to to respond morally to those choices, we need an apocalyptic which also includes something something hopeful about our potential, in extremis, still to love, still to care, still to relieve suffering.
1: It is actually almost a quote by Jonas, uh, not the prophet, but Hans Jonas, about the fact that it's only once the apocalypse is, is, is felt that you begin to be able to do something. And of course, this is why I'm so interested in Clive Hamilton's work on the Anthropocene, because it, it, its argument is hope. Hope is the enemy. Of uh, of action, because as long as you are in the hope, everything appears as a fear, not as a end. And uh, so, what I'll try to do, I mean, the complicated operation I try to do on Thursday, which is the, the final day, because there is only six lectures. I told that there were used to be twelve of those lectures in the old Gifford lectures, uh, but I have only six. Fortunately for you, so the 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 operation is that it is to link the notion of limit which is obtained by the end, I mean the eschaton, with this notion of limit that has been worked out by the geologist. So that's connected to the Malthus argument. If we say, uh, we are limited by the size of the Earth because it's the objectivity of a situation, we are in a situation of being enslaved. We are not in a situation of political limit. So it's quite interesting that in all of this, I think that's what political theology is useful, is to try to relate this definition of limits, which are coming from very different fields, especially one of planetary boundary, which I'll try to use on Thursday, with the notion that we live in the time of end. That's why I started with Gunther and us, because it is perfectly precise of that. We, we, if we don't live in the time of the end, we just don't act. We are just simply afraid. That being afraid is the absolute opposite of morality and action. It's just fear. It, it's exactly why, the, the, why I'm, I was so impressed by this book by, on, the, on 1945. People are terrified. There are absolutely no alternative. And they fight until the last day. He described a village in Germany in 1945. The, the Americans are two kilometers away, and the whole system of repression is completely in, in action. So it's not because of threat, is the fear. Fear is a very bad way of answering this thing. So I agree with you. It's, it's the end, time of the end in the Gunther Ender sense, which is a beautiful uh, version. Of it.
0: Well, I'm I'm afraid actually we may have to draw to a close. Uh, there were more questions, but I think this evening is is moving towards its end time as well. The size of the audiences for the first five lectures, the enthusiasm of the applause, the interest to the questions, and the questioning could go on. I think it has indicated, Professor Latour, that you have certainly captured and, and held our, our attention, and you have communicated your passion. You've also communicated to us the, the vital importance of the subject of your Gifford lectures. We have one final lecture, and that will be on Thursday at 5.30. We will look forward to that with great anticipation. Could you join me once more in expressing our appreciation?
5: This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.